Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of WTF Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Brialis with my prestigious host, Dr. Raheem Young. How's it going, my brother? I'm doing well, man. How you doing tonight? Man, I can't complain, man. What's the point in complaining? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm also pleased to announce we have a special guest, Ron Rapitolo. Am I saying your last name right? Rapitalo. 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 Yes, Rapitalo. There it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> man, glad to have you on, man. So uh, how's it going for you? It's been a long day. I was telling Dr. Young, it's good to have a change of pace to just, you know, be on the end of talking rather than me doing all the asking of questions and having a give people career advice. So um, very appreciative to be on tonight. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm ready to dive right in. Talk fatherhood with some brothers. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. So uh, tell us how many kids you have and what do you do for a living? I have two beautiful girls um, married to a beautiful black queen. So I have uh, black Apina daughters. Um, oh, my okay. oldest is Sophia who is seven years old. And then Ava is my 18 month old daughter. Um, she's turning eight, actually today's her 18 month uh, birthday. So yeah, July 28th, yeah. Kind of crazy to think about that, that she's been alive for 18 months during this crazy pandemic. So um, those are my two girls and I do for a living. Uh, I've been working remotely for the last eight years. I do executive search in the K-12 education and nonprofit sectors and a career coach as well on the side. So I work with placing leaders in charter schools, charter management organizations, school districts, and nonprofits throughout the country. So roles I've done placements for include executive directors, chief academic officers, principals, chief development officers, all those kinds of roles. So it allows me to do what I enjoy doing best, which is building relationships with people and getting great people, especially all the talented uh, leaders of color that are in a space that don't often get the opportunity to get to leadership roles and work in organizations to run a fair and equitable process to get um, the best person in the role. And I got to say, honestly, oftentimes the best person in the role is often a person of color. So um, also career coach people on the side in those same sectors, so provide a lot of support and brokering connections for people to get their next best role in the sector so they can have impact ultimately on kids, kids that look like us, kids from local communities, first generation communities, et cetera. So um, that's my life's passion. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That seems like a pretty interesting uh, field. Like how did you initially get involved in, in that? Yeah, like every good Filipino, I was supposed to go to medical school. <laughs> so much to my mom's chagrin, I did not. Um, and meandered through a couple different careers. So I worked in, um, you know, my, my college, right out of college, because I decided not to apply to med school, then worked at an investment bank right after that, towards the end of the dot-com era, um, hated working in finance, and then uh, had a, what I would call my quarter-life crisis in 2000, and wanted to do something where I was having impact, doing work that could further the legacy of why my parents came from the Philippines to America and had always realized that K-12 education and then my, my, my college education were equalizers for me to move from the bottom 15% of income 
to now today, the top 15% of income. Now to be clear, I'm not a millionaire, but God bless my wife and I make good money, right? From like our humble beginnings. And I realized that I wanted to do something that put fire in my belly. And so I started working at an education nonprofit in 03 and I haven't turned my back since then and working in the education and nonprofit sector. So now for 18 years, I've been working in those sectors and, you know, it's, um, while it's hard, it's challenging. The structure of racism exists in those sectors and you get a lot of challenging situations and people. Um, when you center who you're doing the work for, which are my daughters and other children, particularly of color, from low-income communities, grounds me in the work. So that's what I do, the work. Um, it's about impact, it's about making sure that um, there's a statement that I've heard go around, I don't know what to attribute to, but you know, genius is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And it's something that I think an awful lot about because as I talk to so many talented people on social media, via phone, via Zoom, folks that look like us don't get opportunities that white folks do. Yeah. That's just fact. That's that's a likely, and it's not to say there aren't folks who look like us. Who don't get look at Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast in our generation, in our lifetime, yeah. probably in history, and to have that young black woman, queen, say, you know what, I'm gonna focus on my health. I don't need to go through the pain and anguish of trying to prove something to people that I've already proven. Yeah. Right. There are decisions that young folks made that I get inspired by. I don't think I would have made that decision at 23. I'm like, no, I got to tough it out. Because that's, yeah. that's what we get conditioned to do. You tough it out. You don't want to be seen as weak. Oh, if you're not feeling good today mentally, you just got to gotta be tough. And especially as men and men of color. Oh, yeah, that sure. message is even like quadruply quintuply tough, right? Because toxic masculinity is, is painful watch it all the time amongst amongst brothers of all colors right and it's it, it's a silent killer in terms of stress in terms yeah. of mental health and it's just and so when i think about like all these reasons why i do the work it's so that you can have unlimited options in your future that's what i feel i have right and it took me probably only the last five years to figure out that that's really true yeah. there's a difference between believing it and actually saying wait I'm actually mm -hmm. just bought a home three weeks ago here in Jersey city. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Buying a home feels like I gave my liver away, <laughs> <laughs> but it's beautiful to have a home for the girls. Like when I see, you know, my oldest daughter and the baby girl sliding down our carpeted stairs, I'm like, mm. I'm paying the mortgage. <laughs> it, 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 it's well worth it. Right. And I realized that where I sit, my wife sits, the education we had and the privilege we have is not afforded to a hell of a lot of people in our society, particularly people of color, particularly black. And it's something that just drives me. Like what I've learned in history, what I've learned anecdotally is that there's a dream of America, but there's a really fucked up reality of America that once you understand it, you either have to ignore it are you going to do something about it? Yeah. And I've chosen to do something about it. So what has, um, I know your youngest daughter is 18 months. Yeah. 
And um, so what has like becoming a dad taught you about yourself? Be a lot more patient. And from um, the, from the first time around to the second time around, patience for both? Patience definitely for, for both has been a theme, right? Because kids have a way of teaching you all the things about yourself that you don't like, that they magnify. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, my oldest daughter is literally, and like physically and in terms of her personality, a spinning image of me. She literally looks like my twin. Although she gets offended these days, like, I'm mommy's twin. Like, my daughter, both they want to be mommy's twin, right? But yeah. my daughter Ava looks more like my wife's twin than my oldest, right? But I think one of the things that Sophia's taught me is like, oh, when I grew up, right, we used to tease each other all the time, right? Mm. And it was, you know, at least the way I thought about it, like a sign of affection. Like, if you got made fun of, right, as long as it wasn't like extraordinarily cruel, there was a line, right, yeah. in my family. Like, it just was the way we interacted. And I realized that, for me, there's a certain level of patience of understanding, like, my daughter's not like, she's even more sensitive than I am, right? And in teasing her while she plays with it, it really does hurt her. And so there's a certain level of, like, ah, I can't treat my daughter the same way that I got raised. I have to treat my daughter the way she needs to be raised to be her best self based on who she is. And then learning those lessons to Sophia, I try to impart those same things to Ava. Ava has a very different personality. It's easily scared. She doesn't like surprises, kind of like my wife. So um, she's a little shyer. I mean, but a little. I mean, my, my, my daughter Sophia is like, she's like the mayor. She meets people really easily, very friendly, plays the kids in play. I think Ava, as I see her grow up, is probably going to be a little bit more introverted, right? So that's going to be a different process. Because there's a certain... It's patience and flexibility, right, yeah. of approach. You know, sometimes I think, some parents think, I'm going to treat all my kids the same. I'm going to treat yeah. my kids based on the way I was raised. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the worst things to think. Treat your kids the same way you were raised. And one of the reflections I have that I've learned from raising both my daughters with life is my parents did the best they could with what they knew how to do. Yeah. And I'm not trying to raise my daughters the way my parents raised them. It's two different contexts, right? My parents were coming from the Philippines, hustling and working jobs, working at times crazy hours, graveyard shifts, 70, 80 hour weeks, with a family of seven, right? I've got two kids. We have a pretty good income. Yeah. Just bought this beautiful home. My daughter Sophia just came from a swim lesson tonight. She's taking private voice lessons. Gets access to all these things that I, as a kid, just didn't have access to, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to raise Sophia differently. We live in a very different time, right? And one of the things I also, I think, have become more conscious about, right? Because, you know, my daughters are multiracial, is to raise them with loving both their black side and the Philippine side. And ultimately, as they get older, they can make a choice, mm-hmm. right? I think that's important is to raise both of our daughters to see the beauty there is of Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, right? And many other, many, many, many other beautiful black folks and the beauty of Filipinos and Philippine culture, you know? Looking at someone like her, right? Looking at someone 
don't know if I'm a fan of Sweetie, personally, but like her, I'm a huge fan of, right? You know, and seeing folks in the limelight who are Black and Filipino, I'm like, Sophia and Ava, if you want to, you can aspire to be like her. Or that's thought, or that, you know what I'm saying? Like, part of the reason why we live in Jersey City is because of its cultural just diversity, yeah. right? It's one of the, it's usually when they measure diversity among cities, Jersey City is one of the few East, East Coast cities that's considered diverse because there's a, like, you can't consider a city diverse just because its population is diverse. It's really about how different races and groups are mixing, right? And we know the horrible history of structural racism, redlining has communities, you know, living in segregated, right? You know, when you think about the laws that were centered around um, black folks not owning homes, right? And being, you know, put in certain neighborhoods to live and those housing, like, and then to perpetuate the housing costs were considered lower by, you know, by appraisals. And then less, it's just, you know what I'm saying? And so I think one of the things that I want to make sure that my daughters know is also that history, right? Like we've come a long way and yet there's so much of understanding, even with their relative privilege, how far we're still going to have to go. I, I think another important thing that, you know, patience, flexibility is raising both of our daughters with a social justice mindset. I, that's just, it would pain me as a parent to have my daughters be like aloof, mm. right? Because they could be, right? Yeah. So if he goes to a private Montessori school, she's got me. Let me, you know, let me, uh, ask, you, let me ask you this, uh, Ron. Uh, yeah. uh, are both your daughters daddy's girls? some level yeah they definitely lean more towards loving mom than involved like mom is the chief nurturer i'm the one who spoils so in that way right i think i'm a daddy's girl it's like that stereotypical way right you know sophia wants to get a treat or ice cream she asked me because you know mom's probably gonna say no me i'm like right, i'm in the mood for ice cream let's go get ice cream <laughs> um <laughs> And I think they're like Sophia, like my oldest, definitely daddy's girl. Like I'm definitely, I mean, my wife is playful, but I'm definitely the what the, the parent who takes Sophia out to the park most of the time. Right. And so there's that element of the daddy's girl, like she likes to run around. I run around with her and like we will we'll, we'll play together. We roughhouse a little bit, right? Um, so that's my daddy's girl relationship with her. I mean, with Ava, because she's young, it's just she sits on my lap, you know, and she just kiss and hug her. Like, there's nothing more beautiful than holding a baby girl and smell her. Because oh, yeah. it's that, that baby fresh shit. smell, right? And it's just, <laughs> and then she just sits and she coos and she has this, this little thing that makes me laugh. She's obsessed with belly buttons. Okay. So she lifts, she'll lift up my shirt. It doesn't sound a little nasty. She puts her finger in my belly button and keeps it there and she laughs. <laughs> it makes me think like, am I cleaning my belly button up? My baby daughter to be putting her finger in there? Because, uh, you know, babies, they're putting their fingers wherever, right? I'm like, she's always digging in my belly button. I'm like, I don't know if it's when I shower, really digs the belly button. So I'm like, oh, I better go. 
change my hygiene habits there. But, you know, Ava's still right now. Early returns say that she's also going to be daddy's girl. And I think our relationship is probably going to be a little different. I, I'm, I'm excited to learn how that's going to be in terms of her being a daddy's girl. And I know it's going to be different than the way Sophia is. Excited to find out. <laughs> can uh, can you talk about your relationship with your father? How was that? Yeah, um, you know, my dad died when I was ten, mm-hmm. and when he was alive, you know, I saw my dad as a superhero, yeah. right? And like my chief cheerleader. So when I would do well on a test. I knew to go to my father and my mom encourages behavior. So if I got a hundred on a test, I'd go to my father and he would look at me really proudly, usually be sitting in his office at home doing extra work. My dad did income tax accounting on the side. So um, be sitting in his study. And my mom would say, Adal, go, go to your father, show the hundreds you got on your test. Because what that meant was I showed my dad the test. He would smile at me and grin, pat me on the head, take his wallet out and he'd give me a dollar. So one of the memories I had was I knew that if I said that I got a hundred on a test, that my father would give me money. So I made up a spelling test for today. <laughs> and you could tell it was written by me, right? <laughs> and I tried to put a hundred on it and a sticker on it. And I gave us my dad. I was like, dad, look, I got a hundred on a test. Now my dad could have beat me and been like, how are you going to lie to me? You didn't get no hundred on the test. Why'd you make something up? He just smiled at me patted me on the head. He's like, oh, that's really cute. And they just let me walk away. It's like, oh. He didn't give you the dollar? No, not for that. <laughs> but he also didn't beat me. What's interesting thing, relationship with my dad is, you know, I think like a lot of immigrant parents, right? The way he was raised is that you discipline your kids with the belts. Yeah. Yeah. All six of my siblings got hit a lot in, his, in my 10 years of my relationship with my dad on earth. My dad never hit me with the belt. I still remember the one time he could have done it. Right, I got in a fight with my sister. And I look at my daddy, please don't hit me. And then he just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And my siblings knew, my mom knew. Like, Were you the dad, youngest one? Yeah, I'm the youngest of seven. Okay. So I was definitely the most spoiled relative to my, my other siblings. I always felt that special relationship with dad because he just he provided, saw the best of me. We also had this relationship where when he'd come home, my love of sports started with getting the newspaper out of my dad's attaché case when he came home. So I learned to read the newspaper backwards because what's in the back of the, of the newspaper? Sports the section. sports section, right? So I would read the Post and Daily News, which my dad usually had one or both in his attaché case, and read the sports section. So I started reading about sports as young as like six or seven. And so my love of sports, right? Baseball, basketball. Boxing in particular, and boxing you should show on Wild World Sports and on public TV. I used to watch Larry Holmes fights with my dad. My dad and I had a love of watching pro wrestling. And so my dad would get really excited about, you know, when, you know, the the good guys get beat up and starts to like take hits and doesn't when Hulk Hogan would do that to get hit. My dad would get so excited. And then I would laugh at my dad getting excited. And then my mom would laugh at me laughing at my dad getting excited. And so, like, you know. Yeah, that was a a Hulkamaniac. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Yeah, my dad loved, like, 
there was a part of me like is that like before my dad died, he said he was gonna take us fishing and unfortunately it didn't happen before he died. And there's a part of me that like wonders what my teenage years would have been like if my father was physically on earth. Mm-hmm. One of the spiritual reckonings I learned, especially around my mid twenties, is that my father never really left. But spiritually he's always been around. It took me a while to realize that because I feel my father every day, like literally, mm. right? And my father's outsized presence on me in terms of like my charisma, my generosity to people, um, mathematical ability, things like that. That's all my dad. When people say like, how are you so extra? Where did you get that from? I'm like, if folks would have met my dad, you would understand. My dad was one of those like, People just were attracted to my dad's presence. And I would see it especially, there are two moments. There was my mom and dad's 25th silver anniversary, wedding anniversary. And the amount of people that just came out, like our house was filled with people celebrating my parents' wedding anniversary. I'm like, and that and what was like at the center, right? And income tax season. As I told the both of y'all, my dad used to do income tax accounting on the side. The amount of people that would come to our house during income tax season to get their taxes done by my dad. Mm. I mean, my dad died, he sold the business to someone else because there were just so many people. I mean, my dad probably had four or five drawers full of tax files for people he, he, that were clients, mm. right? If he was just attracted to like, my dad was nice, he could talk a good game. And if I rewind back, you know, part of like the origin story of my mom and dad meeting was like, my mom talked about my dad being a lifeguard and being a gigolo in his like, mid-20s, right? <laughs> okay. And my, my mom wasn't having it. She literally, like the story she tells me about my dad is that she told my dad, I'm not going to mess with you unless you stop seeing all these other girls. Mm. Apparently he did. And then my mom <laughs> and him got married and then, you know, had two, you know, one kid every two years. So my parents had the first six in 12 years. And then I was the happy accident that happened, you know, when they came to America, you know, in 75. So um, mom and dad enjoyed popping out kids. <laughs> so those are the memories I have of my dad. They're like, all, oh. I mean, I'm sure like, look, when you get to know a parent, like, you know, my memories of my mom are different. We're obviously we're not talking about welcome to motherhood. Yeah. But, um, you know, my memories of my dad are like, disproportionately positive because I had those first 10 years where it was just like he treated me like the spoiled youngest kid that he was very excited to have. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So, so take me to um, uh, after the first 10 years after he, he passed. So mm-hmm. who uh, what father figures stepped up uh in your life at that point, uh, from that point going forward until you became a grown up. So from 10 to let's say uh, 21. Yeah. You know, some combination of some of my older brothers played that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say like some level, my second oldest brother, right, played that. Um, my next oldest brother, who was number five in birth order, played a little more of like a older brother, semi-surrogate father. But, you know, 
I think the one person that comes to mind, and this happened immediately after my dad passed, is my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Saluga. Because he's the one team where people ask, like, well, who is the most impactful teacher you've ever had? I always go back to him, right? Because he's the first teacher who ever looked at me and said, you know, Ron, do you realize you could be anything you want to be? Like, anything. Who do you want to be? And I was like, huh? There's a kid, I don't think I'd ever been told that, right? I might have been told it implicitly, but to be told that with a question in that way of like an adult figure, a male adult father figure telling you that, I was like, it, it lit a spark plug of like, wait a second, I may not know in this moment, but to be told that, someone believe in me. A lot of ways, Mr. Salou was like a father figure. You know, I still remember when I, because my dad passed away when Mr. Salou was my teacher. I remember coming back to school and just how empathetic Mr. Salou was. He's like, I'm so sorry for your loss. Is there anything we can do for you, Ron? We're here for you. And I just, just remember that feeling. And there was another incident um, where he had my back. I was supposed to, I was a plot, I was in the process of applying for a magnet middle school in New York City. And interestingly enough, right, I thought I was a shoe-in to get in, right? Grades, whatever. So my last name for some people is culturally ambiguous. People don't know what Rapitalo was unless you see me. Like, oh, he's some kind of Asian. Some people might guess I'm Filipino, some people won't, right? But Rapitalo to a lot of people feels, dare I say, white to a lot of people, right? And when I met the two folks from this magnet middle school, the very first question I got from them was like, oh, you're not Italian? <laughs> and then when I said no, and you know this, like when people have an assumption about you and the conversation shifts gears, I only talk to them for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Right? And as a kid, I didn't realize what they were doing was racist, but I knew something felt wrong. And I didn't have the language for it, but I knew, I think we know through our bodies when something like that happens as yeah. a young age, if you don't have the language, right? Yeah, you I remember telling, so I then told Mr. Saluga what happened. He turned so red, he was so angry. I don't know what he did after that. I just know he went down there to have a word with those kids, mm. right? And so that felt like, oh, he sees me. He has my back, right? Um, you know, he's the one like male figure. I think, you know, I probably had a couple more in college, you know. Um, boy, I'm trying to think of folks. You know, there was the the head of the Students of Color office, um, Dr. Alan McFarland, I would say, is like a father figure to me in, in college, just in terms of mentorship, like, you know, bringing together, you know, young men of color, in different groups. Um, you know, I saw a lot more of that in college, like seeing other, you know, men of color that I was like, oh, I think, you know, K-12, frankly, I didn't see as much of that, right? And, you know, I, you know, the teaching profession has to be very heavily female and seeing, A, seeing a lot of men, a lot of men of color, like I could probably count on, I don't even know in K-12 how many men of color I have as a teacher. I'm struggling to think about that. Yeah, Definitely had some. Uh, only had one. Yeah. Oh, time. really? Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, that impacts you, right? Because you don't see role models, right? And so I would say a lot of like my fatherhood approach, I think has come from 
the plethora of female role models in my life, mm-hmm. right? And so it's easier for me to think of, oh, my two oldest sisters were like surrogate moms to me on top of like my actual, my mom, my biological mom, right? You know, I had a lot of female role models from, you know, the age of 10 through 21. I could probably name 20. Yeah. I am not going like, and so I think a lot of like my own orientation of fatherhood comes from having a lot of my role models come from women, right? Yeah. I think as I've gotten older, a lot of the men that I've tended to be close with also have had strong relationships with their mother or have a lot of like women in their life that they, that like support them, right? Yeah. I have found in terms of like just generally as a, as a cis hetero male, it is harder for me to get along with men who mostly have just other men in their life. Yeah. Harder. Because if they don't see like a, what I would say is a stereo, like a feminine side to them and understand that, like yeah. just that emotional vulnerability, it's, and I could talk all the surface level stuff, right? But I have found that we as men, especially cis hetero men in America, we're conditioned to not be vulnerable. Yeah. Tough, freaking, oh, just shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, and yeah, it's, true. it is the most destructive thing to say, I don't feel anything, I don't cry. I don't need love. I don't need affection. I don't need touch. I'm just like, well, you see all these crazy damn white men going left and right killing shit because yeah. like some way, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a psychologist, right? But like white dominant culture and toxic masculinity, a white type, Oof. it's like, it's like talking to like Humpty Dumpty a lot of times. I'm just like, you on do you see, do you feel it's, it's crazy. And you just, like, and so, you know, I lean towards generally relationships with people of color predominantly. Not to say I don't have relations with white folks. I have plenty of those. Mm-hmm. The people I disproportionately feel the strongest relationship with. And also today, the fathers I tend to have relationships are other men of color, period. Because they're just, there seems that there, there, it always feels to be more kinship on saying, I understand what you're going through as a black father, as a Philippine father, as a Puerto Rican father, et cetera, and raising your kids. Okay. Can, um, can you talk about like how you and your wife met? You uh, told us how you and, well, how your parents met, but how did you and your wife meet? Met on match.com. Back oh, for then, real? January 09, yeah, I was a serial dater for God knows how long. <laughs> God bless, I did not meet her before, and she didn't, you know, meet me before because you know she was, she was more of a serial monogamous and got on match because she was in between relationships, right? I was on match because I told myself I wanted to be in a relationship, but then all I do is date and mess around, and then months before we met, I. I I stopped dating because I said, wait a second, like, do you really want to be in a relationship or not, Rana? And then I just said, I had to stop the serial dating. And so I stopped dating for a while, got back on match around December and January, met her. And after a couple of dates, we knew. Mm. And I had the maturity to say, because I think 2007, Ron would have said, 
you know, there's someone better out there. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be exclusive. Just like keep dating her and see what happens, right? Yeah. Because of the decision I made around saying, I, I, I really do want a relationship, I made the mature bet of saying, I better lock this down and go see what it would be like to be in a relationship. And so like every smart woman, she asked me, well, why do you want to be exclusive with you, Ron? I was like, shit, I better come with a good answer. And then I just <laughs> talked about how I felt about her, the things that we did together in a short amount of time, right? You know, comedy club together, I got her. We went to a wine festival together. One of the things that like I did that in retrospect gave her a signal that I thought that we were for the long term is like every black woman, she loves Beyonce. You're the president of the fan club. <laughs> I got a ticket to see B like several months before, like in advance. And I got it because I was like, I know you would love seeing her and it'd be fun if we saw it, her, you know, saw her in concert, right? Yeah. Which I think, of course she would interpret, which makes sense to me today when she's told me this a couple of times, like then you got me those tickets and they were months in advance. I was telling, she was telling her friends, oh my God, you got me these tickets. And so you must be thinking that we're going to keep seeing each other. Mm. Like, I was just thinking, I love getting concert tickets. I'm like, you don't jump on tickets <laughs> early. You ain't going to go see yeah, nobody. Get sold out. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we became exclusive and then she taught English in Madrid um, for seven weeks. I visited her last week there. And that one week we spent in Madrid together in summer 09, that's when we knew we were going to get married. Mm. We came back from that trip and um, she hates surprises. So in summer 2010, I proposed to her and then we got married at City Hall in the fall equinox of 2010. Wait a minute. Don't skim over that trip. I want you to explain how you figured out during that trip that you knew. Yeah. Um, we knew because of the, we're going to sound like very foo-foo, the energy and the love that we felt during that trip. It just felt so natural. And there's something about being in a foreign country with great food, great wine, a culture that's a lot more relaxed than American culture. I was like, we're living the life of this vacation, right? And just, there was something about that trip and the way we spent time it was like, we could fast forward and say, I could see us taking other vacations together. I could see, we could see us building a life together. And we could figure out what the building life together is, but I think we realized there, there are so many shared values of how we like to have fun, about how we'd love to love each other. I think we're foundational saying like, and like, look, you know, you go to a really romantic place like Madrid and eat out at night, hang out and party. Like it, it, it's like the perfect formula to like create feelings, yeah. you know? And so um, there was one particular, like we have this photo, I, I blew up this photo that a friend of mine took of us in one of the plazas at night that makes it look like there's a light shining over us. It just happens to be, she took a picture where there was a street light kind of like, you know, in the back, like right in the center of, of the photo and we're kissing my wife has her has her leg up right and to me that just symbolized our trip right because we were just so in the moment so in love 
had such a good time eating and spending time with friends. It was like, how could we not get that? I know earlier you spoke on um, like wanting to teach your daughters, like both cultures will have them um, be knowledgeable of both cultures. Have you and your wife ever like uh, clashed over like certain aspects of, of your individual cultures? And like, where, where do you feel like you, your cultures meet? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think when I think about where a lot of like, our cultures meet is a mm -hmm. is a love of the arts, love of music, mm -hmm. love of dance, right? Now, if I think about shows like America's Best Dance Crew, right? Yeah. Usually, the dance crews that won had either a Filipino or black person on it, or sometimes a crew of black and Filipino yeah. people, right? Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of like, you know, just love of like, um, our love of like the arts, right? Um, is something that I think melts really well, right? Um, and, and of music, right? Think of someone like Bruno Mars, right? You know, think of her. I, think, I mean, there's so many, like, different, you know, think of, like, Arnel Pineda, this Filipino guy, is the now the front singer for um, uh, Journey, right? Whose voice is, wow, right? One of the best male voices of this generation. I don't think people are like, oh, that dude can sing, 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 sing. Right. Yeah, the yeah. 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 Like when I get goosebumps when someone sings, that's the bar. I can name the artists who give me goosebumps when they sing. Luther, give me Marvin. uh give me uh your top three all time. The, the, the top three round list of uh singers. singers. Yeah, all time. Marvin, Whitney, who's third? Those are my top two. Oh, that was quick. That was very yeah. quick. <laughs> it would be three. Even with all the child abuse scandals that have run around him, I'd have to choose Michael. Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Although there's a part of me when I listen to Michael, like I, I've stopped listening to R. Kelly for all the obvious reasons, right? But there's oh, a yeah. part of me that when I still listen to Michael, and all the stuff that's like swayed around him, I feel a little guilty sometimes, but that music is so joyous. There's something about the production with like, I believe the best production like between an artist and a producer of all time is him and Quincy. I, I'll have arguments till the end of time with anyone. I'm like, that was magic that got created between him and Quincy. Like that music, I'm like, if you could put infectious joy in a song, you would come yeah. up with "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough." That's the argument that happens. Uh, it's Michael Jackson versus Prince. It's been that since uh, the '80s. Yeah. Prince even was invited to be on Bad, but Prince said, I "I'm heard. not gonna be on Bad because mm -hmm. the first line on Bad is uh, your blood is mine.' Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm not gonna be no part. No part of <laughs> nothing yeah. that nothing that says your blood is mine. That's not my yeah. my type of song." <laughs> yeah. I'm talking to another guy. Like, nah. Yeah. Prince was like, you know, I forgot. Yeah, what's so interesting about the Prince MJ debate is I think Prince was a better musician. Yeah. Play every instrument on his first album. If you if you go back to Prince's first album, nobody else yeah. played instruments but him. Drums, yeah. saxophone, piano, like all of it. Like every uh guitar, bass. 
Prince yeah. played every single instrument on that album. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is going to be controversial, especially when I know people who've been to Prince concerts. I think Michael was the better entertainer. In what way? I just think about, I, I mean, this is my bias around. One of the things I regret is never going to an MJ concert. I did see Prince in concert, which yeah. I'm very glad that I did, right? For me, when I watched the big Jackson's 30th anniversary concert that always shows on Thanksgiving on Centric and BET over and over and over and over and over again and the holidays, I watched that concert, which I could have gotten tickets because right, it was an MSG. And I watch and I go, every time I watch Mike, Michael in that concert on stage, it's like joy. It's like unadulterated, pure, like this is what a concert should feel like. Yeah. His ability to dance, to move the crowd, all the pyrotechnics. Like, you know, when, did y'all watch This Is It? Like the, the posthumous movie when he was supposed to make his big comeback, right? And about him, you know, getting ready for concerts in like London and around the world. Yeah, I seen yeah, that. I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. What's fascinating about, I think, where he and Mike, where, where MJ and Prince were very similar is their excruciating attention to detail around their craft. Like Michael's ear for music and light and all the things in stage production. It was like, I noticed this needs to be here. Wait, you're out of step with the, with the song. Like, wait, this instrument needs to sound like this. I was like, what? So in a lot like they they both were like, for me, it's like, it's choosing between like two of the greatest like painters of all time. Right. It's yeah. really just what flavor you enjoy. Right. You know, I think it's a fun argument to have about who's better because it's really just starting to parse, well, what do you prefer? And yeah, for true. me, I think the part about MJ that I thought for me was transformative and transcendental was his ability to dance. Yeah. And Prince was a badass dancer. <laughs> yeah, Michael, he was. Michael's ability to like, it, it was a genius. Of like he could do a step just by watching it. I'm like who does that? Yeah. That's genius. You know, me me and my son, we, um, well, my son, like, brings arguments to me, like, who's better, uh, Biggie or Tupac? Or, but, you know, uh, Prince or Michael Jackson. But I think for those type of people, you get to a certain level where, you know, you can't really compare them. Like, their work speaks for itself, stands on its own. It's no comparison. So, you know, um, as far as, like, the verses stuff, like the legends and the gods of music and you know rap mm -hmm. and R and B, you know that's leading them out of it. This, they're 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 there. They're they're in the right. pantheon already. So, absolutely, it's no better. It's just like how you said. It's what what you're feeling at that time. Your your taste or uh, you know what you're grooving with. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, to bring it back to your own fatherhood. So, uh, which one of your daughters reminds you most of your dad? Easily my oldest. The oldest? I, I would say Sophia, yeah, because she is a life of the party, extroverted, just takes up the room kind of kid. Ava's more like her mom. That's what we predict. I mean, if, if, if way of watching her interact, and my wife is the 
quiet, steady force, kind of like my mom. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask you that, because uh, they say you either pick your mom, like your mom and your wife are similar or completely opposite. Yeah. So you're, so it seems like your wife and your mom are pretty similar? Yeah, they are. Um, and it's funny to like... I don't think it was because there was a lot like I loved about my mom and then a lot about my mom that would drive me crazy. <laughs> and at some level, it's funny because I think it's something like when my wife and I talk about that, one of the best things we've ever done for our marriage is to go to couples therapy. Yeah. Right? So people go to fitness trainer. We have a financial advisor. Yeah. Believe strongly in a marriage. It's good to have a third party to talk things to. Yeah. Right? Um, been doing it for the past two, three years. We have a therapist of color, which also matters a lot. This gets us, right? Um, and I think as I reflect on like my wife compared to my mom, I think the foundation of the overlap is that they're willing to do, my mom and my wife are willing to do anything for their family. They think family first, yeah. period. Which I think, you know, for me was like, when I think, I'm not saying dads don't, but I think, my reflection in, in the way I grew up is like, that's not my immediate orientation. I'm a lot more selfish than my wife is. And it's an error of growth, frankly, I continue to like reconcile, right? Um, in a lot of ways, me picking me plays to an advantage, right? I'm the younger to seven, do a lot of things. I just do it, right? I'm the guy and the husband and the father, I just do it, right? A lot of my wife's orientations were often where we butt heads. It's like, let me think about what everyone else needs before I do something for myself, right? So she's a lot more selfless than I am, right? That's where we often butt heads. And I suspect growing up when my mom and dad would argue behind closed doors, that's where they butt heads. There's a lot of similarities from what I observed as a young kid about my parents' marriage. It has some overlap with the way my wife and I, but we're two different people. And like, I think our parents had never, A, have thought about therapy Right? It just wasn't the condition of like what you thought, like that generation, like, pay for what? To talk to people? No, we handle it ourselves. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's kind of funny, like you, you know, they, they, they say you, you, you do marry, you know, you know, if you're a cis hetero male, you marry someone the archetype of your mom. And in some ways it's, it's true because when I think of Shanita's dad, um, and may he rest in peace, right? But when I met her dad and we talked, there's a lot of similarities between her and my dad. A lot. Between her dad and your dad? Between her dad and me. Oh, but okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys marry each other's parents, it seems like. Large level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So your your other daughter is, is more like your wife yeah for sure right yeah okay yeah so in what ways or, or how do you uh how do you balance that so how do you uh respond to both daughters because they're both different they both are like different people in your lives so how how do you uh how do you balance uh their personalities yeah, I think, you know, what I do with both of them in common is just, I'm very like physically affectionate, right? And so um, 
I try to do that. And I, I, I think my take, when, when Sophia was younger as a baby, I think she liked that physical affection. I mean, now it's like, it's give and take, right? When we walk together, she holds my hand, right? And so there are things like that where she's physically, she wants me to pick her up and throw her around, right? Um, but I think it's more like quality time. Like you, if you ever read like the five love languages, I think I, I, I see that Sophia is quality time and then like physical touches second, right? Um, and with Ava right now, at least as a baby, it's a lot of like physical touch, right? Yeah. Holding her and playing, like she just, and that's my preferred love language. Like I'm big with physical touch. Where my wife and I overlap is um, quality time. And then acts of service is my wife's big one. Yeah. Which is something I have to learn. Like, so something like me washing dishes is an act of love. It took me a long time to finally figure that out. <laughs> me washing dishes. When I do those things, like it, it like it makes our marriage better, our relationship better, right? It's taking. It's so funny. I think it's someone's like resetting climate, right? So moving into this new house and like everything is clean because you started from the get. You know, me being this routine of like making sure I get something done, sweeping, washing dishes, putting things away, right? Mopping floor, putting laundry. It's just now, it's now more of a habit because I'm in this new environment where it's like, oh, we've kept things. This is the bar and therefore I'm going to keep it at this bar, right? Which really helps like, you know, as we talked about in therapy, it's like, I need you to do more. I can't do everything. Yeah. which I think is oftentimes in many a marriage, like something that we don't like to talk about as, as husbands, right, is supporting our wives, right? Because I think I grew up being conditioned to think all the stuff around the house is done by cooking. That's what my mom and my sisters did. All I was taught to do was laundry, mow the lawn, and shovel snow. I washed dishes on occasion. I swept and but like cleaning the house, in Philippine culture, that was considered a very female thing to do, right? Um, and that's where I think my wife and I have, have started to get a lot better. That's where we butted heads, right? Yeah. All right. So, Ronald, I know we're getting uh, close to time. Um, yeah, so yeah. I have one uh, last question for you. This has been an excellent yeah. video, man. Thank and, you. Um, Thank you. Like, I really appreciate, like, the way that you spoke about your dad and the, the relationship that you all had. Mm -hmm. um, and that made me think about, like, the question, well, the last question I'm going to ask you. So, like, when it's all said and done for you, what do you want your wife and your daughters to say about you? That Ron made every single person feel special and valued. And he would do whatever it would take to make sure they got what they needed. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Also, Ron, uh, when I booked you, uh, I asked everybody the same question, uh, and you answered mm -hmm. it very succinctly. Uh, yes. uh, I asked, uh, what does fatherhood mean to you? And I'll read it to you, Ron. Uh, you said, yes. everything. I learned from and care for my two daughters Loving them gives me more life. Could you elaborate on that a little more? So when I have to drop off my daughters between summer camp and daycare, 
Ava's in a stroller. Sophia's either holding my hand or holding on to the stroller as I walk them down the street. It, it feels like something like in a painting, like I'm, I'm, I'm with them, taking them where they need to go to get taken care of while like my wife and I go about our business during the day. And there's something really like special in that routine of me getting them where they need to go. Where I just, I just love the time that I spend with them. It's, it's this life-giving energy of like that love, knowing that like I'm providing for them and taking them where they need to go, getting them what they need. That for me, aside from like the love my wife and I have, there's nothing more special than like the love that my daughters have. For me, right? It's when I feel down. If I hold Ava, if I'm watching, you know, the crude sequel with Sophia and we're laughing and joking around, or I'm watching her do a Just Dance video on YouTube and acting silly dancing, nothing matters. I guess it's joy from that, right? Um, and so being a father to them is the top three greatest gifts. Aside from being married, you know, Having them is gift 1A, right? To be able to nurture, provide, share advice, and see them grow into like beautiful people. That's great. That's great. I, I, uh, we called this past weekend my uh, oldest son. We, we went to the splash pad, you know, the, you know, where they splash a bunch of water, got a bunch of obstacle courses. It's for little kids, smaller kids, if you will. So kindergarten to like preschool kids, maybe babies. But my nine-year-old was bored. He said, Daddy, give me your phone. I want to watch videos on there. I'm like, nah, I need to capture these moments. Like my, my five-year-old and my, my four-year-old won't be four-year-olds and five-year-olds in this very moment right here, right now, yeah. ever again. Mm-hmm. Like they won't be laying on the ground, splashing right. in this water. Like that won't happen ever. I gotta capture these moments, like right yeah. now. Yeah. There are times <laughs> I find myself like, you know, similar to you, Royce. Like, just wanting to capture those moments, right? And whether it's an Instagram story, it's a photo that I take that I post to Facebook too, right? It's not just keep because I don't want to post. It. I just want to have the photo, right, or the video. And it's funny as I reflect, both of my daughters all of their photos, aside from living on the cloud, all live in an album on Facebook. So there are times I look at Sophia because it's seven years, like photos from like when she was born at New York University Hospital to today. And it's like, wow. Like a memory popped of today. Today was her three-year anniversary of her first swim lesson. Now, I mean, I can't swim well at all. I don't even know how to tread water. I took lessons and then I stopped. Sophia can tread water. She swims freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, butterflies okay. She's a fish in water and loves it. Three years later, I'm just like, and this Facebook member, I'm like, oh my God, this is her first swim class on July 28th in 2018. I'm like, where the hell did time go? It's like crazy. It's like all these things, like there's something about like the capturing those memories that, like in the data that you don't remember. And like one of the things that's brilliant about Facebook and these memories is like, it's like, oh, had that happened at that day? I was thinking that with that, that's fascinating, right? It's just, 
don't know. There's something about the, you know, when you, you get to reflect on those moments, like you enjoy the moment, you capture it, then you can come back to it again. Yeah. It evokes different memories, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Those, those moments you uh, would never, those are priceless. And nobody put a dollar amount on any of those moments for me. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like if you put that in the blockchain somewhere, that I wouldn't, <laughs> like I'll have to, <laughs> unlimited money. That's what it costs for those moments. That's, that's like, right. Uh, like I don't care what it costs. Man, my daughter, my sons, like those very small moments, you would this away, like if you was like a, a regular person, if those weren't your kids, you'd say, ah, that was just little kids doing them. But those are your creations. So I think it hits a little different. Absolutely. Yeah. But Ryan, uh, you know, tell us where, if somebody had to come find you, man, where would they come, uh, where would they come to? Uh, they can go to my favorite three places. You can find me on Instagram, Phenomenon. So Phenomenon, but Phenomenon. <laughs> and then on LinkedIn and Facebook, there's not other Ron Rapitalos, to my knowledge, unless it's Ron Rapitalo in the Philippines. I don't think there are any Ron Rapitalos in the Philippines. Um, if you look up Ron Rapitalo on LinkedIn and Facebook, you can find my profiles pretty easily. So I don't say no to connection requests unless you're trying to sell me something. <laughs> <laughs> hey, stop selling the stuff on, on LinkedIn and everywhere else. Stop selling provide value and then we can have a conversation After i just want if people come at me and want to have a combo i don't say no to a combo fellas i don't i really I, I, I swear i do not like when royce when you hit me up and we was talking it was like hey i got this fatherhood podcast i was like i was flattered i'll say no if people come at me I swear to god yeah because i didn't sell you ron i came at oh, you no. like hey ron what what do you do why did you get into that let's have mm -hmm. a conversation about you and then we can have a conversation about me if you want to. But Absolutely. That's your yeah. choice. That's your choice at that point. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, provide value though. Provide value at every every part, man. That's that's the only that's the, the fatherhood tip of the day. Provide value. That's it. You get it back that's in it. return. Yeah, that's a good parting thought, man. <laughs> <laughs> With that being said, man, thanks again, Ron, for joining us. Uh, for myself, Sir Royce Brialis, for Dr. Raheem Young. And Ron, don't hang up. Please don't hang up when I, when I say it's over because uh, people do that. But uh, yeah, thanks again, Ron Rapatello, for your candor, for everything that you provided on this on this uh, episode. We'll call it a Hall of Famer. We'll call it that right now. We'll end your episode in the Raptors right now. <laughs> All right. There you go. Thanks again uh, for listening and stay tuned for the announcement. Yes, yes. Thank you for listening to WTF Interviews. If you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us via our website, wtfatherhood.org. Uh, also, our Facebook page and our Facebook group will be listed in the description below as well. Uh, I ask you to leave a, a review as it helps more people receive the message. And uh, again, until next time, be well. You already are.